Picky eaters, fossil fuels, and why siblings fight. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer questions about science, faith, and life. Bummer news this week. The site that hosts our uh, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding campaign called Patreon got hacked. And I'll have more news about that at the end of the show, how you may be affected if you help keep this show going. But for now, let's get it started. My name is Sage and I'm eight years old and I'm here to ask you a question of um, um, why do uh, like older brothers or younger brothers and sisters fight so much together and me and my older brother um, fight a lot and I, and I was wondering if you could give me any advice on that. Thank you. Well, hi, Sage. You know, I've got two daughters. Their names are Madison and Macy, and they are 10 and 8, and they are two of the best people I know. My daughters are so nice and well-mannered and fun to be around that lots of people like to spend time with them, including grown-ups. People always remark about how amazing Madison and Macy are, and yet they fight all the time. At home, they get in arguments a lot, they slam doors, they get really, really upset with each other. That's completely normal, and here's why. You see, growing up is all about learning how to be you. And this is hard sometimes because you have a smaller body than adults and your brain has had less time to grow than adults, but your feelings are just as strong as any adult's feelings are. When you're young... Your feelings are the hardest to control that they will be of your entire life. Everyone, kids and adults, has to learn to balance two different parts of their brains. The first part of our brain is very selfish, which is actually good because this part of your brain is meant to keep you alive when times are tough. But the other part of your brain is very social and likes to get along with other people which is also good. You see, people do much better in groups than they do alone. We're not solitary animals. We were designed to live with other people. So kids are learning to balance these two sides of their brains. And kids who grow up together, usually in the same house like brothers and sisters, are learning to control their brains and their feelings at the same time. And so this creates conflict whenever these people want different things. Because if you think about it, there aren't many relationships like siblings. With siblings, you have people with growing brains, sharing space, and trying to get as much attention from their parents as possible. Now, science tells us that the closer two siblings are in age, the more likely they are to have frequent conflict. But all siblings have conflict. This is because older siblings like to take charge and to some degree dominate their younger sibling, while younger siblings just want to have independence and be able to do their own thing. 
So if I had any advice uh, for you, there's a couple things I'd say. First of all, conflict is good. Your family will always love you. And the conflict you have with your brothers or your sisters does help you learn really important skills like how to compromise, how to negotiate, and how to share space and things. It seems tough right now, but you're actually practicing skills that will keep you happy and successful for the rest of your life. And that's what it comes down to. When you realize you're having conflict, when you realize you're arguing or fighting, think about how you can keep things calm instead of making things hotter. How can you de-escalate a situation? How can you step it down and make it less emotional? How can you move towards compromise where two people figure out how they can both get something of what they want? How can you negotiate, meaning how can you come to the terms of a compromise? And when and how is it appropriate for you to share things that you don't want to share and for your siblings to share things that they don't want to share? But most of the world's problems are actually very similar to what happens between siblings. Two people with different desires don't want to give up what's rightfully theirs and their perspective. And believe it or not, learning to get along with your siblings not only helps your life improve, but as you become an adult and become more influential in the world, you actually help make the world a better place by knowing how to negotiate, compromise, and share. I've heard of oil referred to as a fossil fuel and that it actually came from fossils of some sort, as their name implies. Can you explain the science behind that? Dinosaur bones are the rock stars of the fossil world. Everybody recognizes them. Everybody likes to see them in person. And people get pretty excited anytime they get to stand next to a Tyrannosaur Rex. Uh, That's how it goes. Bones aren't the only kinds of fossils out there. Uh, You can have fossils that are impressions of footprints or skin. You can have uh, fossils that are impressions of plants. You can have fossilized plants, which is really different than fossilized bones. That comes into play when we talk about fossil fuels. It is a misnomer to think that oil and coal are fossilized dinosaurs. The fact is, oil is much older than the dinosaurs. And, uh, for example, oil is mostly made up of algae and plankton from the ocean. (laughs) When you fossilize that kind of biomass in the right circumstances, uh, you get oil, which is interesting because... We have oil at places other than the bottom of the sea, and that's because sea levels change over time and plate tectonics move the land around. So things that used to be under the sea are are now continental plates, for example, and you get oil. Uh, Coal is fossilized trees and ferns from long ago. And interestingly enough, based on, again, moving ocean sediment, some of the sulfur problem we have with coal is related to those kind of migrations in and out of the ocean. So it is absolutely true and scientifically accurate to call oil and coal fossil fuels because they are fossilized biomass. And that's the problem with using fossil fuels as an energy source. Uh, When you burn oil or coal, you're taking the carbon that uh, those plants pulled out of the atmosphere and putting it back into the atmosphere. You're running photosynthesis backwards 
And if we burn all the fossil fuels we have under the earth, we will return the atmosphere to a state more similar to what it was, say, 500 million years ago, which is a problem because the earth was much hotter in those days. You had palm trees on the poles uh, and human civilization didn't develop in those kinds of circumstances. Uh, We have been in an ice age the entire time that human civilization has been around. An ice age is any time you have ice on the poles for at least part of the year. Um, Now, we're obviously in a a little ice age nap, if you will. We don't have a snowball earth or, or dramatic glacier coverage on the continents. But we are in an ice age, and that's the circumstances we've developed in and the circumstances we're designed for. A hot, non ice age earth has a lot of deserts, fresh water is harder to get, a lot of the plants we depend on don't especially thrive in it. Uh, so it's a real problem. That's why we get so concerned with fossil fuels, is we're just running photosynthesis backwards and releasing the carbon from these ancient plant life back into the atmosphere. Basically putting the earth in a time machine, taking it backwards. Pretty scary stuff. Hey, Science Mike. My name is Jenny, and I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I have a question about picky eaters. My son, who's almost five, has never liked meat, but my daughter, who's three, loves the stuff and will eat handfuls of beef and chicken. Both my kids love raw fruits and vegetables, but don't like the cooked version. I have family members that hate spicy food, cilantro, fish, sushi, even the seeds from a cucumber. And then I have other family members that will literally eat anything, even if it's burnt. So with the diverse foods and cultures around the world, what makes some people more prone to being picky and others to be more experimental? Is it cultural? Is it exposure? Is it something that happens to us as children? Can we outgrow it? I love to hear the science behind why some people are picky eaters. Thanks, Science Mike. Food is such a dramatic thing for humans. Uh, It's absolutely necessary for our survival. Food sustains us. We enjoy the process of eating generally. Um, But why we enjoy different foods is really complex. It's an interaction of more than just our ability to taste. Smell plays a huge role. Our eyesight, how food appears to us, plays a role in what foods we find appetizing. Uh, for example, you know, a pretty simple grade school experiment is that you can take a steak, put it underneath green light, and most people don't want to eat it, even though it smells good and tastes the same. The green light makes it look unappetizing. So when we talk about uh, taste, which itself is very complicated, you have multiple forms of taste signals that are processed in the brain differently that combine to make a palette of, of all these different tastes that then get amplified by your sense of smell. So let's look at some of the factors, understanding that I could probably do an hour show on this, and there would be plenty to talk about. First of all, absolutely, there are genetic factors in pickiness when it comes to eating. Uh, And among those, a genetic sensitivity to bitterness is especially prominent in shaping the way people eat. We've found that children who have hygiene expression for being able to taste bitter sensations tend to have really strong sweet tooths. They like sweet things that compensate for that bitterness. Although uh, many adults don't show the same preference, they still avoid more bitter foods 
but they don't necessarily compensate with sugar. So that lets us know, among many other data points, that our conditioning can change our palate over time. Now, early food exposure dramatically shapes the palate. The first things we eat in the first year, year and a half of life has a lifelong imprint on our dining preferences to some degree. Uh, now, this is this can be good or bad. For many children, exposure to, to stronger vegetable tastes, lower amounts of sugar will help them um, develop a healthy palate. But if you have an infant who might be a super taster, which depending on what research I've read is either someone that has more taste buds than normal or someone who simply processes their tongue sends more intense flavor signals to the brain than a normal tongue or both, they can be conditioned to not like these kinds of foods from overexposure because <laughs> they have bad experiences. So you have a combination of genetic factors and environmental factors and cultural factors that come in to create the preferences of your palate. Now, the good news is that it can change over time. Uh, picky children, as they grow and, frankly, as their taste sensitivity decreases, may have positive experiences trying foods they once found off-putting. That happened to me. I was an incredibly picky child. I would hunger strike when my parents had the audacity to serve me foods that weren't white, brown, or yellow. Even in that very limited palate, there were many foods I, I couldn't stomach. I would actually retch when I tried to eat broccoli or other vegetables that had a bitter component to them. I was pretty locked in as a chicken strips and french fries kind of person until I started to date. When the honey badger and I started going out, that's my affectionate name for my wife, for those of you who are new to the show, she started serving me uh, foods that weren't chicken strips and french fries, and my affinity for her was greater than my antipathy for those foods. Uh, oddly enough, I found that when I tried them, the things that she cooked, I liked them. That started a process of, of culinary discovery for me uh, to the point now where I'll eat pretty much anything and I'll try absolutely anything that's safe. I actually eat a lot more than Jenny does now because I've had these reinforcing experiences. Now, that means I'm probably not a super taster. The fact that my palate is so flexible, it means that probably shaped by my early experiences, which by the way, when I say early experiences, some scientists believe that what mothers eat can affect the flavor of the amniotic fluid in the uterus, and that already starts shaping taste preferences. Of course, breast milk plays a huge role as well, as what mom eats can affect the taste of breast milk. So what can you do if you're a parent of a picky eater or you're a picky eater yourself? Number one, as early as possible, introduce a variety of foods and limit the amount of sugar in the diet. Our brains are primed for it. We tend to crave it. The more sugar you get, the more you're just going to want more sweet things. So as you can tone down the amount of sugar, you can start to become aware of other foods and flavor sensations. One thing I've learned to do with foods I don't like is simply uh, hold them in my mouth for a minute because I might find that once the bitterness taste buds get saturated in my mouth, I'm actually able to find other flavors in the food and I can start to train my brain to signal in on those other tastes and flavors instead of just focusing on whatever component of that food item I might find offensive. It works pretty well because like your nose, your tongue 
uh, is a is a molecular sampler. It it works by actually temporarily binding to different chemical agents. And if your bitterness receptors get full, you're not going to have that intense sensation of bitterness anymore. It's going to subside. You become aware of the other flavors in that food that other people enjoy. Now it's got limited success. There are some things that no matter how much I try, I I just can't do. It means there is hope. Conditioning can help picky eaters be less picky. Now with kids, just never make it a, a battle of wills. That'll create a defensive child that just wants to win, wants to assert their individuality. So I try to position new food experiences as an adventure, as a treat, as something we all do together as a family. And then we sort of talk about our experiences with the food, understanding it's okay if they hate it and spit it out. The important thing is just that they try it and see if they like it. That's worked pretty well. Our, our kids are, are relatively uh, diverse eaters, certainly much more than I was as a kid. But the fact is, uh, believe it or not, the science of picky eating is relatively poorly understood considering how common societal phenomenon that is. And uh, your mileage may vary. Hi, Science Mike. I have a silly question. I was wondering if you could tell me if there's a reason why, when I'm freezing cold, that my husband is always burning up. This seems to be a universal couple problem. And I'd love to just end the argument and say, hey, it's science. There's nothing we can do about it. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Bye. Believe it or not, the factors behind why people are hot versus cold-natured are relatively controversial in science. Uh, I had an idea of the answer I would give to this question, and the answer I was going to give was subverted by research, which happens sometimes on the show. I blow up my own ideas about science as I answer your questions, and this was one of those cases. I thought I had a pretty good line on uh, exactly why people are hot or cold-natured, and uh, it turns out that my ideas are accepted by some scientists, but not all. So... I'll tell you what we understand about this phenomenon, but wow, (laughs) believe it or not, we're in uncharted scientific territory here in terms of why people are hot or cold-natured. First of all, absolutely scientifically, as population groups, women tend to perceive a given environmental temperature as cooler than men do. But that's as population groups. This doesn't apply universally. For example... The honey badger is very hot-natured. She wants the air blasting all the time, and I tend to be pretty cold-natured. My hands and feet get cold easily. I like it a little warmer. And as we've aged, she likes it colder and colder, and I like it warmer and warmer. When we first got married, I was the hot-natured one, and she was cold all the time. So the first thing I want to say is not only are these not universally applicable to individuals, although you can speak about them in groups, men versus women. Uh, They can change over time, your naturedness towards temperature. But here's some of the factors I found in science about what makes someone hot versus cold-natured. One is a surface-to-mass ratio. Uh, Smaller people have more surface compared to the amount of mass they have which means they radiate more of their heat out into the environment. Okay, so that's one surface-to-mass ratio. Uh, Number two is your body fat percentage. Uh, To some degree, fat is an insulator and does prevent the transfer of thermal energy outside of the body's core, which can make 
people feel warmer, although often uh, obese people actually feel colder because their skin is cooler than uh, people with less body fat. Your body muscle percentage is a big factor. Muscle Muscle generates a lot of heat. It's a very active tissue even at rest, but it also easily radiates heat into the environment. Another factor is your metabolism, how fast you burn calories in action and at rest. I'm sure you've noticed before that if you're cold, you start moving around a lot, you get warmer. If you start running, you can actually feel hot. I know that when I'm training for a race, even on very cold days when I run long distances, I feel quite warm. Suddenly, a 30-degree day feels about right for T-shirts and shorts if I'm going to run multiple miles. Uh, And that's because our hormones play a role in our metabolism in addition to our activity level. That's why, for example, my wife keeps getting more and more hot-natured. It's two pregnancies changed her body's chemistry enough that she became hot-natured. On the other hand, I keep getting colder and colder, likely because inactive thyroid runs in my family. I should probably go to the doctor, get that checked, and get a pill. I might not be so cold all the time. And some studies have shown that there is an absolutely neurologically linked significance to being hot or cold nature, that there are characteristic differences in activity in the brain that predict whether someone is hot or cold natured. So, of course... That's all very interesting. (laughs) What does it mean? Uh, Well, humans don't sense temperature in some absolute sense. We're not thermometers. What humans sense is change in temperature over time. We feel hot when we're not losing enough energy. We feel cold when we're losing too much. And this is a really easily shown in science, especially with your hands. If you touch a, a device that lets you have alternating warm and very cold spots on it, that device will feel scalding hot even though you're in absolutely no danger of burning because your nervous system just measures a difference in temperature. When we look at women, they tend to have a larger surface to mass ratio. They tend to have a higher body fat percentage, but it's centered around their core, so their extremities are colder compared to their core than is true of men as a group. And what we found is when you find men who have similar attributes, they're about the same size as an average woman, they have about the same body fat percentage and body muscle percentage, guess what? They tend to feel remarkably similar temperature-wise to women statistically. Now, of course, you might have an anecdote, well, I've got a cousin, it's whatever. What I'm telling you is the data is clear. When you adjust for size differences, there isn't actually a big difference in the way that men and women perceive temperature of being hot or cold natured. It seems to be a function of body size. So why are men typically hot natured or more hot natured and women typically more cold natured? Because genetically men tend to be bigger. This is one of the few genuine differences in the sexes I've come across that's not just culturally influenced. The fact is men are larger. Larger humans tend to feel warmer in the environment. Now how Do we solve the battle of the thermostat? Well, as for me and my house, (laughs) I set it where Jenny's comfortable. I'll bump the air down, even though I'm a a penny pincher and it bugs me to pay the extra few bucks on the utility bill. The fact is she's more comfortable with more cold air. And so I grab house slippers and pajama pants and uh, wear a jacket sometimes because it's easier for me to overcome my cold bias than it is for her to overcome her hot bias. 
There's only so much she can do to feel cooler. Uh, whereas there's obviously a lot of options for humans to feel warmer. Uh, we're tropical apes. We can't live anywhere but the tropics without clothing and shelter. So uh, we're well-versed in the art of making the cold feel warm. So I got to say, I give the nod to the hot-natured people. It's easier to set the environment in a way that makes them comfortable and for us cold-natured people to uh, bundle up and try not to shiver. Okay, a few housekeeping things this week. Um, First of all, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Patreon, which is the wonderful site that helps this show keep going because it allows people to contribute monthly to its success, got hacked because of a way they had their development system set up. Now, the good news about Patreon is they use properly strong encrypted passwords. So your password, if you contribute to the show, was not compromised. Unfortunately, other information was like your name, email address, your physical address, all those uh, bits of information you may have put into Patreon. Your credit card number is safe because Patreon doesn't store that. They keep that with a credit card processor. But here's the deal. If you use your password on Patreon on another site, like you use it on your banking site or Facebook or whatever, you need to go reset those passwords. And you need to reset your Patreon password. Uh, Before I was Science Mike, I was a computer nerd. And because the hackers got the source code for Patreon, there's a good chance they're going to have the opportunity to crack a lot of those passwords. And I'd hate to see anyone involved in the show get affected. I don't think it's unsafe to keep using Patreon right now. If if I do, then we'll we'll change payment processors. Uh, But I, I think it's worth... Go ahead and changing your password and keeping an eye out for suspicious emails. When people get your email address, they might try to pretend to be Patreon or pretend to be Facebook or your bank and steal your password and wreak all kind of havoc. So just be a little suspicious, even more so of of the emails that come in. And uh, if you need help validating that they're actually from who they say they're from, go ahead and ask a nerd in your life for help. Uh, I also want to let people know, thanks for all your thoughts and your prayers and messages following Dad's stroke. He's doing a lot better a week later, and although it's going to take a few months, we're expecting he's going to make a pretty significant recovery. He's gone from left side paralysis to use of his left leg, limited use of his left arm. He's smiling with both sides of his face again. So (laughs) things are going well, and I would dare say uh, your prayers are helping. They really are. And I've, I've actually been overwhelmed by the amount of support. There's been so many people uh, texting me and Facebooking me and tweeting me and um, filling out the contact form on my website to send encouragement that I've actually been buried under a mountain of notifications and haven't been able to get through them all yet. But I appreciate so much that you guys care, that you're praying for dad. That is huge in my life. Now, uh, some things coming up uh, later in October, I'm going to be at St. Andrew's. United Methodist in Denver. There's going to be a Jennifer Knapp concert, and then we're going to do Ask Science Mike Live, and then I'll be doing the Wildflower Service there. You can go to uh, my website, AskScienceMike.com, and click on events to get more information about that. In November, we've got Belong in London, and tickets are going fast for that, guys. If you've kind of been on the fence about going to Belong, I think this one's going to sell out. So you can go to theliturgist.com slash belong, or AskScienceMike.com and click on events, and you can learn all about Belong. It's going to be 130 people with me, Michael Gunger, Lisa Gunger, and the Honey Badger talking about how do we create safe spiritual communities? How do we find other people that 
uh, can respectfully disagree and have discussions? And how do we live in a world where science, art, and faith are changing the way that we look at our lives and how we look at God? That's what Belong is all about. The one we did in Atlanta was incredible, and I'm expecting London to be just as good. Uh, Now, of course, if you're not in Atlanta or London, you'd say, when's Belong coming to me? We'll probably do Los Angeles next. There'll be more announcements about that. We are working on it. These things are (laughs) surprisingly complicated just to get a room together and get people in it to talk. I had never had any idea. Also in November, I will be at Storyline in Chicago with Don Miller, uh, Bob Goff, uh, my friend JJ from episode 20 of the Liturgist podcast. A lot of really killer people. Sean and Nequist will be there. So uh, if we, I'd love to see you at Storyline in Chicago. If you're in that area, even if you're not in that area, that's, a, that's definitely an event worth traveling for. We're definitely going to do an Ask Science Mike live tour in the first part of 2016. And I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks to get more information out about that. Honestly, I'm a little behind. I've been a few hours a day with Dad, and that's, that's delaying some of my Science Mike work. But that's uh, important stuff. Now... Great questions coming in. I couldn't be more happy with the quality of the questions. I still would like to get more questions from women on the show. <laughs> women, if you're listening, I want your science questions. I don't, this is not a guy show, and I don't like the societal convention that science, technology, engineering, math are boys' fields. I'm a dad with two daughters. It's time to reclaim science for all of humanity. So you can ask questions using the hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Or you can go to AskScienceMike.com and submit a voice or text question. Our show is listener-supported. If you go to AskScienceMike.com, you can click on the Patreon link and learn about that. Every single dollar helps. It's literally how I pay my mortgage. Our show is produced by Greg Nordine. And Greg, i got to send you a shout-out, man. With all the scheduling trouble I've had because of Dad's stroke, you guys, Greg is turning the show around on an incredibly tight time frame. So it's in your ears on Monday morning. This show would not be possible without Greg's work. Now, if you get a chance to send Greg a shout-out on Twitter this week, it would mean a lot to me. Our theme song is by Jeb Botterford, uh, my polar bear-sized best friend. And so thankful for a theme song that not only explains what I do, but also makes fun of me at the same time. Thanks for listening, guys, and I will see you next week.